Today we'll be looking at Romans chapter 6, the first 11 verses of the chapter. My question for you today is this, are you dead? Now some of you might find that a very strange question, and I understand that I've purposely made it one of those questions that's to kind of help you kind of sit up and take notice of it, hopefully get you to think. I guess another way I could ask the question is this, do you have victory over death? Do you have victory over death? Well, those questions should be answered from the book of Romans, particularly chapter 6. Now, if you've ever been in a court session, often the attorneys or those uh, lawyers that are in the court will often rise to their feet uh, during the court session and say, Your Honor, I object. Your Honor, I object to whatever was said. Well, I have a feeling that's what probably some of the, what the Roman Christians may have, have done at this point of this wonderful letter that was written to a church in Rome. Some of the Roman Christians may have felt like objecting to what they heard read from Paul's letter. And what Paul often does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he seemed to anticipate their thinking, and he starts Romans chapter 6 with a question, which we'll look at in a moment. But in Romans 6, chapter 6 through 8, Paul defended his doctrine of justification, which he brought up in chapters 4 and 5. And it was, and if you've read chapters 4 and 5, it was justification, not by works, but it was justification by faith alone. It was not faith plus works or faith plus the law. It was just faith alone. And in case you're not familiar with Romans, let me just kind of catch you up to speed to what happens in the first several chapters. In chapter 1, Paul kind of introduces things and uh, gets to the gospel. But much of uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is showing that the whole world is guilty. In chapter 1, he shows the Gentiles are guilty. They stand guilty before a holy God. In chapter 2, the Jews are guilty. And then in chapter 3, well, in case anybody at this point is thinking, hey, well, that doesn't apply to me, chapter 3 clearly shows the whole world, including us, are guilty. We are guilty. That's the bad news. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul moves from showing the sin to showing salvation, the good news. He he shows that righteousness is declared through Christ by justification alone. And so chapter, the end of chapter 3 is justification stated. Chapter 4 is an illustration of justification in the life of Abraham. And then chapter 5 is another illustration where justification is explained in Adam. And now we come to chapter 6, and 6 is again one of those transitions as we move from sin and salvation into sanctification. So chapter 6 through 8 is all about sanctification being set apart from sin unto God. And chapter 6 is particularly looking at victory over sin, and then 7 moves into liberty over the law, and then chapter 8 is that glorious, wonderful chapter all about the Holy Spirit and how we are secure in the Holy Spirit. So, chapter 6 through 8 is about sanctification, and Paul is defending his doctrine of justification by faith alone. And one of the questions, or the objections, that Paul was anticipating, the, uh, the Romans might ask, is this, if God's grace abounds when we sin, 
well, that's continue sinning so we might experience more of God's grace. If you understand the progression of the book of Romans, you can see how you might logically lead to that kind of an objection. So Paul addresses that issue here in Romans 6. Now, these objections prove that the readers, by the way, they didn't actually understand law or grace. They didn't understand either of them. They were going to the extremes. One of the extremes or the pendulum swings would be legalism. And uh, that's that's kind of typically what the Pharisees would do. One of the other uh, uh, extremes would be license, where, hey, you just do whatever you want. If God forgives sin and there's God's grace, then just do whatever you want. That's license. And so those are the extremes. And so Paul defended justification, but he's also explaining sanctification to us here in chapter 6. And so he told how you and I and, and the, the Roman believers as well can live lives of, of victory, not defeat, but victory in Christ. And he explained our relationship to the flesh in particular, our, our own indwelling sin. What is our relationship to it? And so Paul gives instructions, particular instructions for attaining victory over sin. You can have victory over sin. It's possible. Now as we look at this, this very key passage that deals with that, let me just highlight one thing before we start reading some scripture. And, and one of the things I've noticed is there's a word or, an, or a concept that is repeated a few times and it is a key term, and it's the word know. Uh, you'll notice it in uh, Romans 6, verse 6. Paul says, we know. Uh, you'll also notice it again in verse 9. Paul says, we know. Uh, it's, it's also mentioned again in this book, but uh, those are two times that come up in our passage for today. So the reason I'm telling you that is because the Holy Spirit wants us to know something. He wants us to know something. There was a particular basic doctrine that they needed to understand, lest they go off into to, uh, heresy and uh, misconceptions, that, and we need to know these as well. Christian living depends on Christian learning. It's a glorious thing. We can learn. <laughs> even, even those of us who are getting up there in years, we can continue to learn. Duty is always founded on doctrine. Okay, what, I've heard it said this way that uh, your theology should drive your methodology. And that's certainly true. Your theology should drive your methodology. In other words, what you do should be driven by the glorious doctrine and teaching of Scripture. So yes, duty is always founded on doctrine. And so if Satan can keep a Christian ignorant then guess what? You're going to be ineffective. If you're ignorant, you're ineffective. And of course, God doesn't want us to be ineffective. So the basic truth Paul is teaching is the believer's identification with Christ. And that identification, as you'll see here in our passage, comes through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. There is an identification, a a very particular, specific unique identification with Christ in that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So just as we're identified with Adam in our sin, Romans tells us in chapter 5, and we're also identified in condemnation, by the way, with Adam's sin, 
So we are also identified with Christ in righteousness and justification. Now in chapter 5, particularly verse 12, Paul makes a transition. Uh, So just so you can understand the transition in thought here. In chapter 5, he's talking about sins, plural. But he he eventually, coming here into chapter 6, he moves into sin, singular. There's a difference. He's moving from the actions of sins to the principle of sin. He's moving from the fruit to the root, if you will. And so Jesus Christ, you have to understand, not only died for our sins, but he also died unto sin. There's a difference. And so we died with Christ. When Christ died, you died with him. Now, in case that's, you're, you're finding that a bit, uh, daunting and, uh, maybe you're trying to, maybe you feel like you're drinking from a, from a waterfall. Maybe, maybe this little chart might help you to understand what's going on in Romans here. Now, this is not original with me. Uh, this comes from some book. But anyway, in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, going to the end of chapter 5, it talks about substitution. And, and by that, I mean that Christ died for me, Christ died for you, if you're a believer. He died to pay for my sins, it says. He died to pay sin's penalty, which, by the way, remember, what is the penalty of sin? It is death, Romans 6 says. But then it moves on into uh, chapter 4, talks about justification, where God declares a sinner to be righteous. We're still sinners, but we're declared righteous. We're declared innocent. We are free from guilt and free from sin, as the song says. And so in in justification, you have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. The idea is it's put on your account. So if it was a bank account, if you will, bear with the uh, insufficient analogy here or illustration, pretend you have a bank account, a spiritual bank account, and your bank account is is way, way in debt. It, it's, it's such a massive debt you can never repay. Impossible. Um, but Christ comes along and he not only pays that debt, which you could never repay, but he actually puts money in your account, a vast sum of money. That's the idea. Christ imputes to our account. He takes the bad and he gives you the good. That's imputation. And so the Bible says we're saved by Christ's death. But then we move on into chapter 6 through 8. That's about sanctification, and you'll see it on the screen here, uh, where it's identification. We are identified with Christ, and Romans 6 is going to show us we're identified with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. So when Christ died, guess what? You died with him. But it also says that Christ died unto sin. He broke sin's power. And then it talks about sanctification as well. Uh, The difference between justification and sanctification is, well, one of the things that's different is justification is an instantaneous thing, a a, punct- a punctiliar thing that happens at one point in your life, whereas sanctification is a process that continues on through a believer's life. And, and that process is where you're being set apart from sin unto God. You continually being conformed into the image of Christ. And so Romans 6 tells us we are saved by His life. Saved by his life. Not just by his death, you're also saved by his life. He actually lived the life, the perfect life that you should have lived, which, of course, 
is not possible for us to live. Well, according to the Holy Spirit, ignorance is a key factor in why we live defeated lives. Did you hear me? Ignorance is a problem we all have. And, and it's one of the predominant reasons we live defeated lives. We don't live the victorious Christian life is because apparently there's some things we do not know which God does want us to know, which is why this passage says several times, do you know? Do you not know? <laughs> and the expression's used at least three times. Uh, it's also used in verse 3, which I didn't mention. Paul asked it in the question. In verse 3, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? So that idea occurs at least three times. And the first area of ignorance with which the Holy Spirit deals has to do with this realm of death. He deals with the realm of death. Death is everyone's enemy. Uh, as you heard Heidi say earlier, it was something that, that she was actually fearful of. And many people are fearful of death. And if they're not in Christ, Jesus, they should be. Frankly, they should be. But if you're a Christian, then death is something that you should no longer fear. It's because it's actually the beginning of a glorious future. So death is everyone's enemy. But we're going to see that if you have actually put your trust in Christ alone, then you don't need to fear death any longer. It's no longer your enemy. If, if anything, you should view it as your friend or a gate to something better. I have a series of questions coming from Romans 6 that we will answer and go through this passage today. My first question is this. What is the reality of our death with Christ? What is the reality of our death with Christ? Number one, I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 that it is certain. Your death with Christ is certain. Look at verse 1. Paul asks these questions in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So it's a rhetorical question. It's certain. The reality of our death with Christ is certain. Now think about this for a moment. Think about death for a moment. Nothing can be more unresponsive than a person who is dead. Right? That, you need to get that imagery in your mind. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to be thinking. Imagine trying to provoke a reaction from a corpse. Is that possible? Well, not a very good one anyway. Um, I mean, you, <clears throat> unless you're the prince kissing Snow White, you can kiss a, a dead corpse and nothing's gonna happen. Right? You can give commands to a corpse and nothing will happen. You can even, don't do this, but you can punch a corpse and nothing will happen. You're not going to get a response from a corpse. Why? The answer is it's dead. It can't respond. And that's the good news that we see here. And it is good news that a corpse cannot respond because God considers every Christian to be dead to the promptings of sin. Now, obviously, we're not talking physical death here. This, this is in the spiritual realm, of course. And it's true, and it is certain. This death is true, 
and certain, God says. And so the question is, is this for me. This is my question for you. Do you know that your spiritual death is certain? Do you know that? There should be in our lives such an experience of this reality of the death in Christ that sin can no longer get a response from us. Just as, as if you try kissing a corpse, you're not going to get a response. That should be that way with us in regards to sin. It is certain. But number two, it is successful. You say, well, what is the reality of our death with Christ? It is successful. It's not only certain, it is successful. Look at verse 3. Do you not know, notice again the word know in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, it's successful. That's the point. But to drive the point home, the Holy Spirit actually gives us two illustrations here to drive this point home. Lest you're not understanding what the Holy Spirit wants you to understand and wants you to know, here's the two illustrations. And the first one is baptism. Baptism. Baptism represents identification. So if you've ever been baptized, that that whole process is an identification. And you say, well, what does the word baptized mean? Well, here, here's, a, here's a good definition. Kenneth Weiss said this, the word baptized means the introduction or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into union with someone else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. So, let's be clear here. When does this type of baptism take place? The baptism that Romans 6 is talking about here, is that going to happen in, in a few moments down at the river? Or is this something that should have already happened in my daughter's life? It's something that should have already happened. It's, it's something, this baptism is something that happens at the moment of conversion. When the Holy Spirit converts a sinner. And you are, you are in Christ. Well, one commentator put it this way. Again, on the screen, I quote, It refers to the act of God introducing a believing sinner into vital union with Jesus Christ. In order that the believer might have the power of his sinful nature broken and the divine nature implanted, through his identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, thus altering the condition and relationship of that sinner with regard to his previous state, end quote. That's conversion. That's regeneration. That, that doesn't happen with water baptism when someone's dunked under water. But water, water baptism is, is, should be showing the reality that should have already happened. And so here's the point. The Apostle Paul is driving home the reality of our death with Christ and he's pointing to a real and actual personal experience. Salvation is a personal experience. Okay? It should be real. And baptism is the first illustration we have here. But there's a second illustration in verse 5 and it's grafting. It's grafting. Look at verse 5. 
says, verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now that word united uh, could be used of grafting branches together. I've given you a picture of a graft. If you look closely at this particular graft, what they did is they kind of chopped all off all the branches off the top of the tree, and then they stick these little branches, lots of little branches, in the bigger part of the tree. And what happens is the little ones grow into the big ones, and it's after a while it, they just become one. That's grafting. And that's the imagery that we find here in Romans. So just as a grafted branch becomes united to the life of the tree, God's saying the Christian becomes grafted into Christ. It's kind of that imagery of John 15. You're the branch, and Christ is the vine. And you're supposed to abide in the vine. Abide in Jesus Christ. So the idea is we share His very life. Well, this word united could be used in in another sense, uh, in case you're not getting that imagery. Maybe you understand about Siamese twins. I've given you a picture of some Siamese twins. You may have seen this documentary on TV a couple years ago uh, with these particular twins. The word united could be used of Siamese twins. The idea of of Siamese twins is, is two people have become one. They are united in a way that that they're inseparable, and many times doctors are afraid to even operate on Siamese twins lest they kill at least one of them, if not both of them. They often share one heart. They share one life together, uh, which is kind of funny because when I watched this documentary about these particular girls, they, they, because they both have separate brains, they liked different guys. So it's kind of awkward when one girl wants to date one guy and she's kind of stuck going on the date with that guy, but the other girl who has the different head, wants to date another guy because she doesn't like that guy. And so they all have to go on. It's, it's an awkward situation. But they're, they're united together. They, wherever the one goes, the other goes. They're inseparable. They share their life together. And, and, and in a way, this is how we are with Christ. You share your life with Christ. And those, those two illustrations are showing us a greater spiritual truth. The Apostle Paul is seeking to convey this remarkable truth that Christ's death was our death. His burial was our burial, and His resurrection is our resurrection. And so He not only died for me, He died as me. And so as far as God is concerned, then, every Christian is already on the resurrection side of the grave. And in fact, there's this wonderful... uh, Uh, these wonderful words in in Romans chapter 8 showing that glorification is a present reality. In in God's eyes, your glorification is a present reality. So, every Christian is already on the resurrection side of the grave, and then, you know what that means? It only remains for us to realize this truth and then experience this truth. So the issue is, do you know? That's the question in, in Romans 6. Do you know this Reality. Do you know this truth? Well, my second question for you is this. How is our death with Christ possible? The first five verses are showing that it's, it's something that's certain. It's, it's actually successful. But, okay, explain it further. How is our death with Christ possible? Well, number one, 
Verse 6 shows us our old self was crucified with Christ. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Let's stop there for a moment. Now those words, old self, some of you might have a translation that says old man. Uh, Old man, by the way, is not referring to someone's father in this passage. I, I kind of prefer the translation of old self. The idea there, by the way, it's not referring to chronological age either. But the, the word old refers to something that's completely worn out and useless. So now that I'm in my 40s, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm starting to feel that way myself. Some of you might... You might be feeling a bit worn and, and, and wore out and maybe like you have one foot in the grave yourself. That's the idea here. Something that's fit for the scrap heap. You might be looking for your glorified body one day. Well, for all practical purposes, th- this is talking about something that is destroyed. It is so useless and so worn out, it's destroyed. The old self is none other than the unregenerate, unsaved person that was described in Romans chapter 5. And so if you're a believer, then, well, this is, this is talking about what you used to be like before your conversion. I've given you a picture of, of, uh, of a crucifixion here, so in case you under, you're not understanding what, what's going on here in verse 6 with the word crucified, crucifixion was a very, uh, a, a form of execution, been around a long time, obviously, even before the time of Christ. I believe that's a painting of the apostle Peter being crucified upside down. But the Bible's using the crucifixion to talk about what happens to our old self, that pre-conversion self. It's dead. It's now dead. That's what the Bible's saying. You have been crucified with Christ if you are a believer. And to say that our old self was crucified, it meant that it was put to death. It was put to death. The whole point of crucifixion was to put someone through extreme pain and eventually kill that person. It was to be long, excruciating death. And so to be crucified means you're dead. That's that's the whole point of Romans 6, verse 6. And another point that needs to be made here is this, that no person can crucify himself or herself. Right? It's... You don't do that to yourself. The Roman soldiers did it to Christ, you know, and, and that's the way it is. Someone else crucifies you. You can't do it to yourself. And so, in death by crucifixion, the execution is of necessity at the hands of another person. You can't take the hammer and pound the nail through your wrist. Someone else does that. And so, at Calvary, God's dealt with this question of self as well as sin, by putting us to death with Christ. God did that. You can't do it. And so our old self was crucified with Christ. Number two, to answer this question, how is our death with Christ possible? Well, number two, our body of sin has been done away with. Look at the last part of verse 6. It says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Your body of sin has been done away with. And by the way, you will be a slave to someone or something. 
it's not an option. Either you're going to be a slave to sin, or you'll be a slave to Christ. It's one or the other, and there is no other option. And by the way, that phrase, uh, <clears throat> might, might be, sometimes we think when we see the phrase in, at the end of verse 6, might be, sometimes we think of the idea of it only being a possibility. But in the Greek language, in the Greek language, there is no possibility here. This is something that is sure. It is steadfast. It is certain. The idea of might be is just an idiomatic, an idiomatic way of stating something that already exists as a fact. It's not a possibility. It is a fact. Okay. You understand that? Look at the end of verse six. Think of that as a fact. We no longer are enslaved to sin. That's a fact if you're a believer. Now the phrase done away with, um, or brought to nothing, however you want to look at that, suggests our, our body of sin is annihilated. It literally means to render inoperative or to render something invalid, to make something ineffective by literally pulling the power away from it. Removing the power of control from whatever that object is. Now, to illustrate that, I've got some, some two illustrations hopefully we can understand by looking at the, these. Okay, Number one, it's a bit like taking the petrol out of your car or your truck or your van. Right? Uh, if you have a car, truck, or a van, and you take all the petrol or diesel fuel out of it, you're not going anywhere, are you? Unless you have one of those really weird kind of vehicles that runs on something else. But if your gas tank is empty, it's rendered that car or that vehicle inoperative. It, it can no longer move. It can't work. Its power is taken from it. The car is not annihilated, is it? No. The car's, the car's still there, right? It hasn't been annihilated. The car hasn't been utterly destroyed, the car is still there, but you've just rendered it inoperative. It's not going to work. And that's the way it is with our body of sin. Okay, Christ rendered your body of sin inoperative when He died on the cross for your sin. It's like taking the, the, the fuel, the petrol, right out of the car. So you say, what is the body of sin? Well, it's been defined as the instrument for carrying out sin's orders. And here's the point, my friend. Every Christian is to regard his or her body as dead as far as an instrument through which sin can actually work. That's the point. Sin should no longer work in a believer. Now, of course, your body doesn't feel dead to sin, does it? If your body's like mine, you constantly feel that that spiritual battle going on within you, the, the flesh versus the spirit. And so because God says it's dead, then we must believe that it is dead. So it's not an issue of feeling. You're going to feel that war going on inside you, but we must believe there's something God wants us to know. And one of those things is that we are dead to sin. And so the issue is, are you going to believe God? Or are you going to believe your feelings? 
my friend, let me exhort you to believe God. Do not trust your feelings. Uh, God can be trusted. Your feelings cannot be trusted. Your feelings cannot be trusted. You hear me? God can. God says something, we must believe it. Sadly, though we're often slow to believe this great fact, and in the process we live sometimes defeated lives instead of a victorious Christian life. Well, if you don't get that illustration, maybe you'll get the next one. All right? I want you to understand the Bible, and God says, you are dead to sin. Well, I'll never forget a day where this happened. There was a day, my mother came home with some chickens. Now, my recollection of it, I was just talking to my mother this morning, my recollection of this was a little different from hers. So that I, I'm trying to be honest. Um, I'm sure there's some things, you know, as children can be. Children, for example, I pictured 20 chickens, and my mother told me there was, there was less than 20 chickens. But anyway, she brings these home in the, in the vehicle, and she wanted my help to kill these chickens. And the idea was we were going to kill these chickens and they were going to be future dinners. And you say, well, how did you kill the chickens? Because uh, at that point I was a bit of a city slicker, frankly. And, you know, I just, I thought chickens came already plucked with no heads, the guts already taken out, and they were all frozen at the grocery market, right? So this was all new to me. I thought they stank, frankly. They, they smelled really bad. And so, so, so my mother wanted my help to catch these chickens. And we had this piece of wood out, uh, that was outside on the grass. And there was two little nails in the piece of wood. And, and so we held the chickens down between the two pieces of, of wood, of uh, nails there on the wood. And we took an axe and we chopped off the head of the chickens and we set them down. Maybe you've seen this happen. Sometimes chickens, when they have their heads cut off, run around even though they no longer have a head and brain attached to their body. Well, that's what happened for some of them. And I thought that was really cool. I'd never seen that before. And I also thought, man, this is really strange. These chickens are actually dead, but they don't actually know it for some reason. The, 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 the head and the body, there's a disconnect, no pun intended, but the, the head and the body are not working here. They're dead. Why are they running around the yard, bumping into trees and whatever else? Well, I was thinking about that. Well, <clears throat> that's the way it is sometimes with believers. That's the way it is sometimes for us as Christians. We are dead to sin, but for whatever reason, there's a disconnect. We're like a headless chicken. We don't know the reality of what God has done in our life, just like those chickens, at least the body of the chicken, wasn't getting the reality, its head was missing. They were dead, but they didn't believe it. And that's a tragedy, a far greater tragedy when it comes to Christians, for whatever reason. The reality of the truth of what God has done has not connected to the body. Well, I hope those illustrations are helpful to you. They weren't just to be amusing, I assure you. Well, number three, how does this happen? Well, a believer can no longer be a slave of sin, it says here again in verse 6. A believer can no longer be a slave of sin. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him, that's Christ, 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the point. A believer can no longer be a slave of sin. And if that's not clear to you, what what verse 6 is saying, the Holy Spirit makes it very clear, I think, a few verses later. So let's, let's, let's look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once to, that once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. That should be pretty clear. Now here's the point. Here's the point. A believer's Slavery under sin has already been broken by Jesus Christ, and therefore, guess what? It's a thing of the past. One commentator put it this way, I quote, Paul does not teach that a Christian is no longer capable of committing sin, but that he's no longer under the compulsion and tyranny of sin, nor will he dutifully and solely obey sin as he formerly did. For all genuine Christians... Slavery to sin no longer exists, end quote. And you say, why? Well, how, how, why? How can that be? Well, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So if you died with Christ, you were set free from sin, Scripture says. Well, I read a, an, an interesting, helpful uh, illustration of this coming from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've given you a picture of a field here. So this, this paddock or pasture or whatever it is, this field has a road going through the middle of it, right? <clears throat> and Martin Lloyd-Jones uses this as an illustration to try to help us understand what Romans 6 is talking about. So he, what he does is he pictures two adjoining fields. Picture one of the fields on one side of the road is owned by Satan. The one on the other side of the road is owned by God. They are separated by a road. Now before salvation, a person lives in Satan's field. You are totally sub- subject to Satan's jurisdiction. What Satan tells you to do, you have to do it, and you get paid his pathetic wages in the process. Right? He's not a good master. But then when you're saved, you cross the road in, into the other paddock or the other field. After salvation, a person works in the other field. You're subject to God's jurisdiction. And he pays much better. He's a much nicer master. And so you, you plow in this new field. However, as a believer, you're often tempted by your former master. Your former master is across the road and he's constantly yelling at you and trying to, to get you to come over to his side and obey him. He's, he's trying to entice you back into your old sinful ways. But Satan often succeeds in temporarily drawing the believer's attention away from the new master and the new ways of life. But guess what? The old master, Satan, is powerless to actually draw the believer across that road into the old field. He's powerless. He tries hard, but he's powerless. That's the, that's the picture that Romans is giving us here. 
Well, the next question you might ask is this. What are the results of our death with Christ? There are some glorious results. What are they? Well, number one, Christ's death brought the death of death for every believer. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Now, here's a picture of a grim reaper. You say, what's, what's the point of the grim reaper? Well, think, think of death, right? What do grim reapers do? Grim reapers come and they take people to their death. They're the one who, who, who that's what they do. Nasty as they are, that's the point. And so because we've died and been raised with Christ, Scripture says we too will never die again. Never. Now, you might die physically, but you'll never die spiritually. So the sin that made us subject to death, guess what? It's no longer master over us. You have a new master. Death's no longer master over you. And so since death is not master over Christ, death can never be our executioner. Never. Never again can death be your executioner. Well, as this next picture shows, sadly there are some great short shortcomings in, in uh, some of our churches today. Part of those shortcomings lie in the fact that there's an inadequate concept of Christ. And there's been an inadequate concept of Christ even from the first century, sadly. And so sometimes they present Christ either as an infant who's still in his, in his earthly mother's arms, or as in this case, they present Christ still on the cross. I hope you have a problem with that. Christ is no longer on a cross. He died, but He rose again. So Christ is no longer in the cradle. Christ is no longer in the Virgin Mary's arms. By the way, she's no longer a virgin either. And Christ is no longer on the cross. And He's not in the tomb either. He's alive. And so He's alive from the dead, and He is alive forevermore, Scripture says. He is beyond the power of death, he crushed death and Satan. And so the fact that death no, no longer has power over Christ becomes the foundation. It becomes the basis, if you will, for the next argument in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Because verse 10 says this, For the death He died, that's Christ died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. Now here's the point. Number two, Christ's death brought the death of sin for every believer. Not only did it bring the death of death, it brought the death of sin. And if you're a believer, this applies to you. Now the climax of this section, I think, is here in verse 10. Death, by the way, is the product of sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So the product, the end result, if you will, of sin is death. And so because death is the penalty of sin, then to break the mastery of sin is breaking the mastery of death in our life. Do you see that connection? Now, two extremely important truths in verse 10 need, need to be emphasized here, okay? Lest we miss them, let me emphasize two things in verse 10. 
Number one, Christ died to sin. Now, there's a lot of pronouns here. I want to make sure you, you don't miss this. Christ is the one who died to sin. Now, how could he have died to sin when he was sinless? How could he? It seems that Paul means two things in declaring that Christ died to sin. First of all, we need to understand this, okay? I'll put them up on the screen here for you. Number one, Christ died to the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Death. Christ died to the penalty of sin. How did He do that? He took upon Himself as our substitute the sin that we have. He took our place. He bore our sin. And so all who ever believe in that substitutionary atonement receive the penalty of sin is dealt with forever. Right? But number two, not only did he die to the penalty of sin, Christ died to the power of sin. Okay, So this is where sometimes it's, there, there, there's a little bit of a disconnect in our lives. We might understand how Christ died for our penalty, which is death, but we still feel that power of sin. We may not feel like he's done that, but he has. So he died to the power of sin as well. He broke forever the power of sin in our lives, and that is only possible because of what Christ did. And then our faith in God's Son as well. So, first of all, we see here Christ died to sin, but number two, Christ died to sin once for all. It's once for all. In case you didn't notice that in verse 10, it's once for all, it says. So Christ achieved victory. It's something that's never again needed to be repeated. Hebrews makes that very, very clear. There is no longer a need for sacrifices. Christ was the Lamb of God who died, and there no longer needs to be any other sacrifices for sin. So at Calvary, God made the, the more than adequate provision for all sinners. God dealt for fully and forever with all the aspects of, of the question of sin. Well, you say, okay, man, that, that's, that's great, glorious truth, but is there, is there anything that I should do with this? Okay, I, I understand. I know, but what do I do with this now? What do I do with it? Well, if you're wondering what to do with this, I have, I have one simple application from you, for you, sorry. One simple application, and it comes in verse 11. And my question is this, how should we, how should you respond to our death with Christ? There must be a response to this. There must be. In fact, it's a command. It's not an option. It's in the imperative in the Greek. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the answer is, how do I respond to my death in Christ? Is you must continually consider yourself dead to sin. That's the negative. But the positive is you must consider yourself alive to God. That's what God wants you to know and and act on it. Now that word consider in your Bible in verse 11 is a present imperative active verb. Now if that sounds like Greek to you, which it is, let me explain it. Uh, Whenever you see something in the present tense in the Greek language, that just means it's something you are to continually do. 
It's a continuous action. You are to continuously reckon, as some Bible translations say, or consider this to be reality in your life. It's not a one-time thing. It's, it's done throughout your lifetime, continuously. But it's also imperative. It's an imperative. It's, and by that, that's just a command. It's not an option. You can't say, you know, I don't feel like doing that, or I don't want to do that, or come up with some other excuse. God says, you must do this. You must. And notice there is the word must before the word consider in verse 11. But it's also an active. And and by active, that just means that's something you are to do. Nobody else can do this for you. You must do this. Okay? So it's a continuous action, or and it's a command that you must do. You must continually consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you this. Do you take this truth into account every time you're tempted? By the way, it's not a sin to be tempted. All right, You have to act on that temptation. But when you are tempted, either by your own indwelling sin, this world, or Satan, what do you do with that? What, what are you thinking? What are you taking into account? Hopefully, hopefully you're doing what Romans 6 says here. You are considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So when you're tempted, you must, you must think this. Okay, that's the old master. I don't have to listen to him anymore. He doesn't pay my wages. That's the old master. I have a new master. His name's God. I must obey Him. I must listen to Him. And I want to because I love Him anyway. Well, in the new KJV, it uses the word reckon. In our ESV, it has the word consider here. And what it means is this. It means to put to one's account. The idea is you are to put to your account something. It simply means to believe something. What are you to believe? You are to believe what God says in His Word, specifically. You are to believe the truth of this reality that God has declared. Paul didn't tell his readers, by the way, this is what I want you to feel. No, he didn't say that. He said, this is what I want you to believe. I want you to know this truth. What does he want us to know? That you're dead to sin. This is something you're to understand. And then when you understand it, the Bible says, then you act upon that. It's not enough to just know it. You've got to act on it. So we act on God's Word, and then we claim it for ourselves. We claim this truth, this, this reality for ourselves. So reckoning, or considering, if you will, is a matter of faith that then issues in an action. It's an action where, hey, I'm not going to obey the old master, I'm obeying the new master. Because the old master isn't my master. I have a new master. Well, here's a picture of a check on the screen here for you. And, and, and my point in putting the picture of a check up here is this. This truth that I'm trying that Romans is trying to get across to us is 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 like endorsing a check. And by the way, our check is far bigger than that one. And so if we really believe that money is in our checking account, then what do you do? You act on it, right? 
If you really believe you have money in your bank account, you will go and you will sign that check and you will withdraw that money or do something with it, right? But if, on the other hand, if you don't believe it's there, you're going to say, yeah, right. I'm not doing anything with that if you don't believe it, right? Reckoning or considering is not claiming a promise. It's acting on faith. It is actually acting on faith. God doesn't command us to become dead to sin. You can't do that. Christ already did that. You understand that? Christ did that when He died and rose again. He already did that. You can't do that. So, there's no point in God commanding us to do something we can't do. You can't die to your sin. And so in this case, He tells us we are already dead to sin and alive to God. And then what God does is He tells us, he, in this case, He actually commands us to act on that truth. What truth? That you're dead to sin and alive to God. And so if we do not act on it, then the facts are still true, by the way. Okay, It's a bit like somebody somebody getting one of these checks. Let's say you get a check, and you say, man, that's that's a lot of money. That can't be true. I don't believe that. Well, whether or not you believe it, the money is still there. Okay? It's still there. It's a reality. It's true. Whether or not you act on it doesn't matter. It's still the truth. And that's the way it is with us. And so if we don't act on it, the facts are still true. God has killed sin. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That is truth. And God commands us to act on that truth. So may God help us to act on the facts instead of just living by our feelings. Why? Because we actually believe what God's Word says.